millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I'm standing in the nave of Canterbury Cathedral, just a stone's throw from the spot where Thomas a Becket was murdered in 1170. You can probably hear they're currently tuning the organ, which is a wonderful sound uh, the recording probably doesn't do justice to. I'm also gazing up at the stunning fan-vaulted ceiling of the cathedral crossing. Not only am I living out all my perpendicular Gothic dreams, but I've also arrived at the final point on the old Pilgrim's Way. In recent times, Martin and I have visited Winchester and plenty of other places along the Pilgrim route, so standing here feels like following in the footsteps of so many others who've made ritualised journeys to holy places, from pagan pathways to Saxon, medieval and early modern Christianity. Pilgrimage is primarily a spiritual experience, but it also has important transformational aspects. In embarking on a journey of this kind, the pilgrim searches for meaning, for higher understanding of the self and others. There's so much to explore in this cathedral, from the spot where Becket was murdered to the tomb of Henry IV. There's a hidden herb garden, kings and saints immortalised in stained glass, carvings of mermaids and dragons and green men, and a mysterious medieval crypt. But whether pilgrims made the journey to Canterbury to visit the shrine of St. Thomas and drink its healing waters, or to honour St. Alphege, another martyred Archbishop of Canterbury, or simply to reconstruct the journey of Chaucer's fictional pilgrims in the Canterbury Tales, there's a wonderful feeling of peace which descends when stepping into this sacred space. Today's story features a lesser-known character from Kent's history, whose tomb I'm about to visit. I'm just hoping that the legends aren't entirely true and that when I look at her resting place, she won't open her eyes and look back at me. Lace up your sturdiest pilgrimage boots ready to step into the unknown, but gather round the campfire first and listen in. Welcome to the Three Ravens podcast. There were three ravens. 
insects on a tree. Down and down, hey down and down. They were as black as they might be with a down. One of them said to his mate, Where shall we our breakfast take? With a down, dairy, 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 down, down. Hello and welcome to episode nine of the Three Ravens podcast. I'm Eleanor Conlon and I'm bathing my face in the May morning dew and calling to my co-host Martin Vaux to come and join me for a Maypole dance. Oh, I've done my stretches and I'm feeling limber. <laughs> well, we are flapping our inky black wings and gronking for joy because at the time of recording this episode, we've had over 4,000 downloads, more than 3,000 in the last week. Yes, it's mad. We definitely received a big boost from David Crowther at the History of England podcast who kindly played an ad for us on his show and thank you to all of the history of england listeners who've come to join us around the campfire we both love that podcast and have been listening to the history of england for years but we really couldn't have grown like this without our fantastic three ravens community who've been all over social media sharing and commenting and writing reviews martin who are we celebrating this week well first off we must mention alex howard beckett who wrote us a review on Apple Podcasts and iTunes, which reads, I absolutely love this podcast. I stumbled across this amazing duo the other day and I am hooked. I love folklore and supernatural podcasts and this is now one of my favourites. Knowledgeable, fun and cosy. It's like a cup of tea and biscuits in my ears. I cannot recommend it enough. So lovely. Tea and biscuits for the ears. Could there be higher praise? I know. It's very niece of him. Oh, crumbs. That's a bad pun. Come on. It was a cracker. Stop. My tummy hurts, you know. I have a digestive Martin, problem. Martin, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much, Alex. And please, dear listener, if you have five minutes, do hop onto Apple Podcasts or iTunes and write us a review, as the more we have, the more Apple will push us up the rankings and make it easier for other people to find us. Thank you also to Anne, Elliot, Rain and Jermaine for your emails this week. I particularly wanted to mention Jermaine's message where she said that because she's stuck at home, she enjoys listening to our opening sections where we wander through the natural world. Thank you, Jermaine. And I'm really sorry about the organ <laughs> tuning for today. <laughs> um, thank you also to the lovely Bry and Fry at the excellent Pontifact podcast we've had some chats with them on twitter including about which weapons would be appropriate for popes to duel with Ooh. yeah we, we concluded paschal candles oh, fantastic um, if you're interested in popes and the history of rome do check out pontifacts it's very fun and likewise mark from the folklore podcast who's invited us onto his show so that's very exciting and i'd be remiss not to mention mark clarissa lisa charles ruth Cordell, Lucy, Robert, Chameleon, and Dr. L, and also Twitter user Just a Stone, who used to live near Netley Abbey, which we Ooh. talked about in episode six. She reports that, yes, it's very spooky, especially the Abbot's Lodge, which she says has a horrendous energy, and, and she says that she has seen the ghost of the Grey Lady in the chapel. No way. Yes way. Oh, well, 
thank you to all of those people and to the many, many others we haven't mentioned. It really has been wonderful interacting with you all and please keep gronking away. It's clearly making a huge difference. It really is. And the places to share and chat with us are at Three Ravens Pod on Twitter, at Three Ravens Podcast on Instagram and on Facebook.com forward slash Three Ravens Podcast. We're also welcoming some new ravens to our Patreon flock. Actually... The collective noun for ravens is a conspiracy of ravens. (laughs) Amazing. Well, welcome Martin, Alicia and Rob to our conspiracy of ravens. All hail Martin, Alicia and Rob. All hail Martin, King of Patreon. All hail Alicia, King of Patreon. All hail Rob. King of Patreon. <laughs> Thank you to all of our supporters on patreon.com forward slash three ravens podcast. We are so grateful to you and hope you enjoy the brand new May edition of the Three Ravens newsletter, as well as all the other exclusive stories, episodes, and juicy tidbits we've popped on there. We've had some stunningly beautiful recent entries to our card design contest, too. Thank you to all of those amazing artists. Yes, there are four more weeks to enter the competition before the end of the first series. So please do send us your original art that you think would look good on a greetings card, inspired by the folk tradition, and as a JPEG to 3ravenspodcast at gmail.com. Now today we're wishing all our listeners a joyous May Day. A summer is a <laughs> Absolutely. In the English year, Steve Roud suggests that the celebration of May Day was traditionally second only to Christmas in popularity with the English people. Excellent. It's easy to see why. A festival which celebrates the lengthening of days, the return of colour to the trees and hedgerows, and of course, the sunshine. Although we've not had an enormous amount of sunshine in Sussex. I have to say, it's been raining pretty much all week. (laughs) Yes. Well, indoor activities could be moved outdoors with more time spent in nature. May Day celebrations also crossed social boundaries. Everyone from kings and queens to milkmaids and farmers could join in and go a-maying. Well, yeah, jolly good. Excellent. I feel like people should, you know, come out of their office blocks as well. A-maying. And go a-maying, yeah. I agree. (laughs) Let's see more maying from people in corporate jobs. Yeah. But whoever you are, there's a feeling that May should be celebrated with decorations and finery, garlands, flowers, nosegays, and the wearing of one's best clothes. Ooh, what are my best clothes? I don't know. I do have a nice pair of trousers, don't I? Yes, I think you should wear those. Okay, good. <laughs> it likely originated with the celebration of the Celtic Festival of Beltane, yes. which is one of the quarter days in the Celtic year and is still celebrated by modern pagans and Wiccans as one of the Sabbats on the Wheel of the Year. I love Bell. He's one of my favourite of the Celtic deities that we know much about. And we don't know very much about even Bell, but we do know that he has a kind of radiant sun head. He's kind of a hero of uh, of Celtic myth. Um, and some people think that he may be the original source of the Jack in Green or, ah, or the foliate head. Beltane or Mayday follows straight after St. Walpurgis Eve or Valpurgis Night on the 30th of April. Although St. Volperga was an early Christian saint who helped battle rabies and whooping cough, as uh, any, the old enemy, any good saint should, yep. the day has become strangely connected with witchcraft. Yes. And it's fair to say that things have become a little confused with the origins <laughs> of St. Volperga, who's also linked to the pagan grandmother concept. Oh, yeah. But it's also said that Valpurgis Night is when witches meet to dance with the devil. Yes, quite right. I mean, that's what we're doing later. Absolutely. <laughs> 
Um, what we can say with confidence is that the celebration of that festival is certainly traceable to pre-Christian merrymaking and the warding against evil, which took place around May Day. Yes. Because spirits and fairies are thought to be particularly active at Beltane, and the goal of many of the traditional rituals, including the lighting of bonfires, was to appease them. Yes, of course, wreath-making as well to protect your door. If you saw last month's Three Ravens newsletter, then we had some guidance on different ways of protecting your house during Beltane. Yes. Now, the icon of May Day, in addition to the garland, is, of course, the maypole. Mm -hmm. The symbolism of the maypole has been continuously debated by folklorists for centuries. Fertility symbol, just a pretty decoration, harking back to the tree of life or the tree of knowledge. As May Day or Beltane is a festival which connects with the waxing power of the sun, it's definitely possible to see it through the lens of a fertility ritual. Yeah, for sure. And of course, there's the shape. Yes, there is. The suggestive shape. (laughs) Perhaps it's just part of the general burst of colour. Maypole dances are still performed today and feature crossing dancers creating intricate woven wrappings of ribbon around the central pole. I will pop up a video on the Three Ravens blog of people doing a maypole dance for those of you who are unfamiliar. If if you don't live in England and perhaps have never attended one of the May Day fates and celebrations, you may have never have seen this. Well, there are maypoles in Europe, but they look a little different. traditions are a little bit different yeah i mean if anyone's seen the incredible folk horror film midsummer uh, by ari aster Mm. that's got the the swedish um maypole tradition yeah it does um and yeah there are various other ones um some of which i was reading included running to a neighboring village and trying to nick their maypole (laughs) if you managed to steal their maypole your village was better mischief and tricksters (laughs) yes other ways to enjoy the day include the crowning of the may queen the dressing and displaying of may dolls or lords and ladies and street theater including morris and the old oss what's the old oss well the old oss or hobby horse is a amazing folk symbol probably deserves its own episode yeah Um, and then there's the jack in the green which is actually still being celebrated in its own festival in hastings east sussex as we speak oh that's so cool (laughs) well done hastings and Jack in the Green, which you mentioned as yeah. having a connection to Belle, is usually a figure completely covered in leaves who dances through the streets. And sometimes he's stripped of the leaves as he goes to release the spirit of summer. And sometimes he is ritually slain at the end of the parade. I was very interested that there was all this controversy about foliate heads and Jack in Green on the internet about a month ago. It kind of burst up as a trending oh, topic. Oh, really? Yeah, because people were like, it's a really old tradition. And then a lot of people were going, it's not old, it's new. But there are, I mean, Roman remains that look like the Jack and Green and and foliate heads. So, of course, there was a big revival in the Victorian era. Grotesques on pew ends in churches. But a lot of those were carved in the Victorian era of the 19th century. So so I can understand why there is some controversy about it. But nonetheless, getting a guy to dress up in a big suit made of leaves and run through your town... That's good. What's not to like? Yeah, exactly. Any year, any season, any era. <laughs> <laughs> Other superstitions for May Day include getting up early to bathe your face in the morning dew, which is supposed to improve the complexion and the health and generally make you more attractive. Yeah, that's what we were doing this morning, wasn't it, darling? We yep, were out there. Absolutely. Or in the dew, dew bathing. Dabbling. But hopefully not 
too attractive, oh, yeah. as May was traditionally the least popular month to get married oh, in. Oh, really? Yes, and that's because the children of a May bride are supposed to be doomed to bad luck. Ooh. And animals born in May are also meant to be really difficult. Really? Yeah. Well, this is so fascinating. Obstinate pigs I've and never such. heard any of the obstinate pigs. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to decorate your home for May Day, hawthorn is the traditional flower for garlands. Good to know. Which is also known as May. So if you hear about May Blossom, that's hawthorn oh. blossom they're talking about. And hawthorn has loads of symbolic significance. It's associated with fairies and gateways to the fairy world, mm-hmm. with the Greek goddess Persephone, with the crown of thorns. Jesus wore and the staff of Joseph of Arimathea. Of course, very handy stuff, isn't it? Hawthorne? Yes, it's also meant to be very good for carving stakes to seal vampires. Well, that's primarily what I've been using it for all these years. <laughs> One last word on May Day. I'm normally a bit of an Oliver Cromwell apologist, yeah, as you, Martin knows. You're a bit of a fan of old Ollie. I do like Oliver Cromwell, but I'm sorry to say that he did ban May ceremonies and celebrations, so it's difficult to forgive him for that. Well, didn't he also ban Christmas? Yeah, I think I need to do some deep thinking about my feelings about Oliver Cromwell. Yeah. I mean, it's coronation time right now, so <laughs> interesting Venn diagram overlap. <laughs> <laughs> For Patreon subscribers, there's a special Fires of Bell tarot spread in our newsletter, which is perfect for this season. And you can see our spookily on-point results when we tried it a few days ago on St. Mark's Eve. Right, Martin? It's time to pull the county criers from their Jack in the Green performance and get them to do some work and ring us into Kent. Kent is located in southeast England. It's bordered by London to the northwest, Surrey to the west, East Sussex to the southwest, and Essex to the north over the River Thames estuary. Oh, it's quite big. It is. It's also bordered by the sea and faces Pas de Calais across the Strait of Dover. Mm-hmm. Kent's one of the home counties, which I discovered is actually a phrase originating from 1695. That's a surprise. I thought it was something that sort of dated from Conservative governments in the late 20th century. No, first record of it of that phrase being used is in the 17th century. Wow. Basically, it was possible for civil servants and courtiers to have their homes in the counties bordering London and still be able to travel into the city oh, relatively easily, okay. even then. That makes sense. So what are your associations with Kent, Martin? Well, I have to say, before we went on our various escapades, because we've been exploring Kent a bit lately, so that I could learn a bit more about it and see some of its sights. I mean, it's a way to get to France on (laughs) High Speed Rail 1, so I know about that. And I've spent a summer working as a shelf stacker in the Sainsbury's in Ashford, which was a fairly dark time in my life. (laughs) Um, I, I know about a lot of the supernatural associations with Kent. It seems like there is a lot of spooky ghost stories and goings on in Kent, especially the Screaming Woods at Pluckley. Oh, yes. Um, We must devote more time to talking about those because it's a very interesting topic. I feel like there's a Patreon-exclusive episode just about Screaming Woods. Yeah, quite right. (laughs) Well, I spend quite a lot of time border hopping from Sussex into Kent, and I love driving through it. It's known as the Garden of England because of the North Downs, the High Weald and the plentitude of orchards, flowers and green spaces. Yes, it is very pretty. Having spent some time there lately, there's some pretty gorgeous countryside in Kent. Lovely views on there. Well, in Saxon England, it was still called Kent, although spelt with a C, uh-huh. or Kentland, Kentishland. And in Latin, it was Cantia or Cantium 
which probably means corner or like on the edge. Well, that kind of makes sense because it is that bottom corner mm. of England, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and the people of Kent were the the Cantiaki. Cantiachi? The corner people. The corner people. (laughs) The first king of Kent is said to be Hengist, a jute who led the invasion of Britain in the 5th century. Yes, Hengist, king of Kent, is a name that I know. I know nothing about him, but I know the name. Well, Hengist gets around, so I'm not surprised, because he pops up in Beowulf, and in the Prose Edda, and in Geoffrey of Monmouth, and in Bede, and his doings were also dramatised by Thomas Middleton, one of Shakespeare's contemporaries, in his play Hengist, King of Kent. Yes, that's Great play, would 100% love to see more productions of that. Of him, yeah. <laughs> the county motto is simply Invicta, Whoa. meaning undefeated, although technically Kent was conquered by Hengist. So. Yeah, also having spent a bit of time there lately it was conquered by quite a few people over the years variously yes. I suppose it's such a strong motto you didn't really want to change it well it's also like the person who's been beaten up and is lying bloodied on the floor then picks themselves up I'm undefeated I can walk this off <laughs> Maidstone is the county town whoa that's Famous. a surprise yes I had assumed it was Canterbury yeah prior to this episode uh, but it's Maidstone which is famous for housing key figures in the Peasants' Revolt of 1381 Watt Tyler and John Ball uh-huh. were both there yeah. it was also a key landmark in the English Civil War the Battle of Maidstone resulted in a rip-roaring victory for the parliamentarian forces and the Mayor of Maidstone at the time Andrew Broughton yeah. was responsible for pronouncing the death sentence on Charles I whoa so he was like Charlie You've had your chips. Exactly. I'm sure those were the words used. (laughs) The county was traditionally divided into East and West Kent. And interestingly, the people on either side of the Medway River have different names for themselves. What, as in like you're Brian on one side of the river and Jim on the other? (laughs) No, not like that. If you're from the east of the Medway, you're a man or a maid of Kent. Yeah. Whereas if you're from west of the Medway, you're a Kentish man or a Kentish maid. Oh, okay. All right. And ne'er the twain shall be confused. Well, this feels like, you know, scone politics down That's, in the yeah, southwest. It's, it's a similar thing, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Kent has a plethora of castles for all you castle fans out there. Walmer, Sandown, Hever, Leeds, Sissinghurst, Rochester, Upnor, Deal, many of which are artillery forts built by Henry VIII to protect the coast. And then, of course, there's Sutton Valance Castle. Ugh, Sutton Valance Castle. We thought we'd go to Sutton Valance Castle. We were trying to tick off things that we hadn't seen. Open the English Heritage Book at random. Nothing there. Don't bother. <laughs> up, up the top of a very steep hill, and it's just a few <laughs> Very rocks. hard to find. Whereas, like, Sissinghurst... Oh my goodness, what a stunningly beautiful place. Gardens, historical ruins, amazing, amazing place, Sissinghurst, if you've never been there. (laughs) So do you remember Augustine, who we talked about in our very first episode? He was delegated to by Pope Gregory. Yes, yes. I mean, the kind of English myth is that Augustine came here and introduced Christianity to the English people. Yes, we've been discovering lots about him after visiting Canterbury last week. We did have lots of wonderful historical adventures, which we've been posting about on our social media. We sure have. Yeah, so Augustine was a religious missionary who became the first Archbishop of Canterbury. And even today, Canterbury Cathedral is the centre of English Christianity. 
I mean, we've got so much to say about the things we saw in Canterbury. Do you want to give a a brief rundown? Oh, my goodness me. I mean, we saw so many different things. The cathedral itself, stunning. We spent several hours there. I was very interested to learn that Christianity had come to England earlier. There were Roman Christians. Um, And then, of course, the Romans left England and St. Augustine came back and began a sort of reconversion mission. Mm. Uh, But in Canterbury, you can find... In the Beanie Museum, and I found this absolutely mind-blowing, the original Celtic cross. Yeah, the Canterbury cross. Yeah, the Canterbury cross. The first example, I mean, everybody, I think, in England, certainly, maybe even the world over, knows what a Celtic cross looks like. But the very first one forged is in Canterbury. It's in this little museum behind glass without even a label it's just kind of stunning wild in in a in a very unassuming glass case surrounded by anglo-saxon treasures yeah i mean brooches belt buckles beads it's amazing yeah so the beanie museum you've got to go the roman museum was also really interesting very very interesting yes sub street level at the level the actual roman street would have been yeah so there's some photos of that on our social media and i'll pop some on the blog on the website as well so i found that really interesting but St Augustine's Abbey and the Church of St Martin's, which is the oldest church Mm. in England, were both two sites that, I don't know, I had quite powerful responses to. I think the idea of all of these dead kings underground, uh, St Augustine's body, you know, his grave right there, um, amazing places. Being the site of his original church. Yeah, and the impact that these places had on the rest of the British Isles. It's sort of the landing point and this sort of epicenter from which all of these new traditions all of this kind of devotional art music uh, philosophy all kind of spread out from there so so going there was quite special for me it was a wonderful visit and i highly recommend that to anyone who's in the area but there are lots of other great places in kent too some of which have popped up in the podcast before we actually visited Biddenden we because we wanted to seek out the Biddenden Nades, which we thought were charmingly depicted on the village sign, only to discover a mystery. Yes, so the Biddenden Maids definitely were on the sign in the village. There's photos of that sign all over the internet, and if you search up Biddenden Kent, you will see examples of that sign. But when we went there... The sign was gone. Well, part of the sign was there. Yes. The the pole part. Yeah. But the bit with the maids on it vanished. So I don't know whether they've gone off on holiday, whether they Perhaps just, they have. just decided Maybe to toddle Riviera off. Riviera for, yeah. for the summer months. <laughs> if anyone could solve that one for us, we'd be very grateful. Yes, please. <laughs> now, there are some great folk legends and ghost stories originating from Kent. We have the Wonsome Worm. Oh, okay. Not an associate of our Sockburn Worm, but a much more metropolitan sort of worm. Well, the the name Wonsome suggests that like he's a very hungry worm. Is he like a giant version of the very hungry caterpillar? Uh, well, <laughs> sort of. <laughs> the story goes that the princess of the Isle of Thanet, that was actually an island in those days um, with a channel between, yeah. wouldn't choose a husband. So the wantsome worm, who was happily swimming in the channel, which ran between the Isle of Thanet and the rest of Kent, yeah. heard of this and turned himself into a handsome young man and went off to woo her. Oh, what a worm. Yeah, what a worm. Well, it goes well. They get married. But after the wedding party, when the worm's feeling a bit tired and hungover, yeah. he accidentally eats the princess. 
Um, has to make a quick escape back into the water and then there's loads of resulting shenanigans as the king and his friends try to get the princess back out of the world that is so funny it's kind of a bit like the melusine myth um but then it's flipped obviously in gender and then the idea of being eaten i must say i was not expecting i i thought that you know, her love would would turn him permanently into a prince, but yeah. no, just wakes up and has it for breakfast. Morning, Brenda. Om, nom, nom, nom. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> then, rather more romantically, there's the mystery of the Lady Lovibond, a ghost ship said to have been wrecked off the Kent coast, of which there have been various sightings. Oh, well, one of the things that I loved about the Kent Roman Museum, or the Canterbury Roman Museum, was that there are all of these plates and sources that people have been using throughout Kent for a really long time. They're all Roman and they all came from a terrible shipwreck where all of these kind of imported bowls sunk to the bottom of the sea. And then for years, fishermen were trawling and and fishing up all of these bowls, which then people started to use and and have as kind of prized possessions in their houses. Yes, the discovery of all that Samian ware led to the place off the coast of Whitstable being called the Pudding Pan. That's so cool. (laughs) (laughs) Now there's a grey lady who haunts the woods in Oxney Bottom. And there's also an eight foot tall red eyed beast which roams Tunbridge Wells. Not just a hug over gentleman. (laughs) Well, who knows? (laughs) (laughs) He's certainly a very tall one. Um, Not to mention a strange black dog, which prefigures accident or misfortune if you see it. Uh, But I feel like every county in England's got a strange black dog. Yeah, they do, don't they? I mean, we've talked about a few. We haven't got to Black Shuck yet. He's obviously a really, really important one. Um, The king of black dogs. Yeah, indeed. And he's a much more developed myth and story, isn't he, Black Shuck? Yes, he is. There are also some folk practices which are alive and well in Kent. So this weekend just gone, you would have been able to see the Rochester Sweeps Festival, which is one of the largest gatherings of Morris sides in the world. And there's also the Hop Huddening to celebrate the East Kent Hop Harvest. Kent is a great area for hop growing. Yeah, we saw loads of fields of hops, didn't we, as we were driving through it. So um, if you like hoppy pale ale, there's every chance the hops may have been grown in Kent. And there's the Whitstable Oyster Festival and the Blessing of the Waters, which is held annually on St. James's Day. How about the Screaming Woods, though, Eleanor? I know that a couple of years ago, you got a bit lost wandering in the Screaming Woods. I did. My dad and I went for a walk around the Screaming Woods and around Pluckley in general. And I can only say those are the creepiest woods I have ever set foot in. Yes. Some of those trees are definitely things pretending to be trees. And (laughs) there is just an atmosphere about the place and mm. twilight was falling as we went into the these woods and there's a sort of darkness and stillness about them which is very affecting and there are lots of legends about ghosts um there in, are in the woods. so many i mean there's over 13 known entities in the screaming woods yes we did do it was a bit of a walking tour trying to find them yeah so i mean these include the likes of a ghost horse and carriage which rides through the village and through the woods Um, I mean, the one that I thought was most creepy was this uh, brick worker who drowned at the brick 
clockworks and, and his ghost appears smothered in clay as he walks Ooh. through the woods. Then there are a series <laughs> of, yeah, I know, grey ladies, red ladies, people who've hanged themselves and you can see their spectres in the woods at times. So yeah, there's an awful lot in Pluckley. So if you happen to be in Kent and you want to have your uh, timbers shivered, then go to the Screaming Woods. Have you recovered from your trip to the Screaming Woods? Just about, but that might be down to the fact there's also a very nice pub in Pluckley with an open fire. <laughs> <laughs> well, perhaps we need to make another trip. Oh, I think so. That's Halloween, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and finally, if one of your sheep is looking a bit peaky, just Ooh. try putting a toad in a bag around its neck. <laughs> At least that's what Philip Russell tried in Rochester in 1363. Uh-huh. But he was arrested and publicly beaten for witchcraft, <laughs> so perhaps a trip to the vet might be a safer option. <laughs> and in... <laughs> So, hold on, wait. Your sheep is unhealthy, so you tie a toad in a bag around its neck. Mm -hmm. Do we know if it's a living or a dead toad? Unclear. Okay, because I'm imagining if it is a living toad, it's not going to survive that long in a bag. Unless you're also providing it with, you know, food and water. (laughs) (laughs) I'll leave the ins and outs to the imagination of the individual. I I need to run some tests. But I have another great magic charm from Canterbury in 1543. Yeah. When a woman tried the rather vindictive spell of burning a candle over the dung of her enemy, which was supposed to have the effect of making the enemy in question's bottom explode. (laughs) This is excellent magic. So all you need to do is find the turds of a foe. Mm -hmm. And then if you can do that, you can make their bottom explode. Exactly. Ah, lovely. I feel like this podcast needs to start coming with a don't try this at home warning (laughs) (laughs) for all of our folk medicine. I mean, don't try this at home, anyone. But if you do, tell us how it went. (laughs) (laughs) I'll leave you with that thought and I'll start spinning my yarn right after this. Many moons ago, when blessed Julian of Norwich was old and I was young, a queen came to Leeds Castle, a queen who could talk to spirits and raise the dead. She was French, of course, which Roger the Steward said went just to show, and what more did you need, really, and it was only a surprise she hadn't been found out before now. It was a lot of horse manure, said the cobbler, who came to the castle to mend our shoes. It was money, that was all. 
Money is the only magic of our age. King Henry wants money for his wars and the Dowager Queen has got it. There were those who agreed with him and those who did not, but I was as green as grass back then and my ears pricked up like a spaniel's at the slightest hint of a juicy tale or a slice of gossip. I won't say I've changed my coat too much where the gossip is concerned, so if you can stand me a cup of ale one winter's night, I'll tell you a thing or two. But the tall tales I've learned to take with a sprinkling of salt. The rumours travelled between us like spreading fire as we went about our daily work in the castle, and everybody was stopping to chatter much more than usual, leaning on brooms and letting pots boil over. His Majesty King Henry had arrested the Dowager Queen for treasonous necromancy. She plotted and schemed for his death and destruction. Objects had been found in her private chambers, said Mary, idling over the cheese curds. Bottles of potions from the Witch of Eye and strange charts reading messages in the stars. She could raise up dead corpses from their graves, Alice told me as we were washing the floor, and charm both fiends and fairies to do her bidding. When I went out to collect herbs, John the gardener told me that she was as crooked as they came and that she accepted bribes and was greedy and stingy, hoarding all the money for herself. Even her late husband, King Henry IV, had been kept on an allowance. And when we gathered around the kitchen hearth in the evenings, Roger the steward told us about her wicked father, Charles the Bad. Now, when you're young and impressionable, you don't need much more than a name to form your opinions, and Charles the Bad was fairly conclusive. He'd been a murderer many times over, preferring to hang his victims upside down in chains and slowly behead them. He'd been in league with the devil, so whenever the people of France had caught him and tried to lock him away, he changed himself into air and slipped away undetected. But the wager he'd made with the devil for power and influence took its toll on Charles the Bad. In return, the devil was slowly eating away at his limbs, decaying them one at a time. The ends of his fingers were black and rotten, and every time he spoke, a stink came forth from his foul and broken teeth. Terrified of death, Charles the Bad sought the help of all the doctors in the land, but none had an answer for him, until one day the devil came to him in disguise as a doctor and advised him to have himself sewn up in a bedsheet soaked with the finest brandy to preserve his flesh. Well, Charles lay down and they wrapped him up in yards of the best linen and doused him with gallons of expensive liquor. But then the devil changed himself into a seamstress and appeared to help stitch him into the sheet. And when nobody was watching, the devil tipped a candle over and there was Charles the Bad gone to hell in a blaze of fire with no chance to pray. We can only assume, said Roger the steward, that the devil had a fine old time feasting on his soul drowned in all that delicious brandy. Somebody else piped up that they'd heard Charles the Bad had been a necromancer too, and a poisoner, and all sorts of other things. The Dowager Queen was just the same, like father, like daughter. Well, by the time she actually arrived, we were all good and terrified, and nobody wanted to be the one to serve her alone in her chambers, so we drew straws for it. Marjorie got the short straw, and I thanked all the blessed saints it wasn't me. The Queen was tiny and pretty, with a round face and a high forehead. 
in hindsight, she probably didn't look quite as we'd imagined a necromancer might look. But at the time, we saw all sorts of foreboding in the thundering hooves of her tall black horse, the noiseless sweep of her gown and the glow of her eyes. I remember how white her hands were, slipping out of her jewelled gloves. It was a strange sort of imprisonment for treasonable necromancy, we had to admit to ourselves. Queen Joan had plenty of luxury and an allowance. She came with her own clerk, Thomas Lilburn, who we tried in vain to get to gossip with us, but he was as tight-lipped as a priest. She had her own household of 19 grooms and seven pages, which was great news for all of us maids, I can tell you, and so can the man who's now my husband, who arrived with her that day. The extravagances kept coming while she was settling into the castle. Chests of fine clothes of silk and linen and more bolts of cloth and metres of grey squirrel fur to trim capes. Three dozen pairs of shoes, golden girdles and silver buckles, medicines and a personal physician from Portugal to prescribe them. Our eyes widened as we saw the parade of things carried in. Books more than we'd ever seen. A gilded harp and a popinjay in a birdcage which shrieked loud enough to wake the dead. Rosewater, cinnamon, an aquavitae. A pot of green ginger lying on its own bed of straw like a wealthy invalid. All of this bustle meant that we almost forgot the dark rumours about her. But that was when strange things started to happen around the castle, or so it seemed. I doubt my memory now, but it was real enough to me then. There were noises in silent rooms, you see, and sudden blasts of cold air when you walked down a passage alone. Once I thought somebody pushed me hard in the small of my back, but when I turned around there was nobody there. We heard footsteps, heavy and determined, crossing the gallery above our heads, but when John and Roger ran up there with the fire irons and shouted to whoever it was to stop in the name of the king, the room was empty. People started to hear the scrabbling claws of a dog skittering on the flagstones after dark, and soon after we started to see it. It was a monstrous black hound, long in the back, with a collar of gold and rubies the same red as its flashing eyes. I never saw it myself, but plenty of people did. Sightings of the beast were terrible luck, because Nell from the still room saw it, and she got an awful toothache right after it, so we knew it must be something sent from the realms of the devil. After that, we all looked away or closed our eyes tight whenever we heard the dog's paws or its hungry, panting breaths. The worst of all was when I woke up in a cold sweat after a dream of buried skeletons forcing their way up through the orchard soil, one earth-encrusted finger bone at a time, and limping and rattling slowly but surely towards the castle. When I looked down from the window, I could see the queen in their midst, her white hands raised and the dead bones ready to do her bidding. Now, I was lucky for a good long while and never had to go into her chamber alone, but one evening I certainly drew the short straw and there was no going back from it. I had to go in there, and as the others said, my turn was long past due. I was shaking and my back was clammy with sweat as I knocked softly on the door and went in. Night had just fallen, one of those autumn nights which comes down all of a sudden. The chamber was dark, lit only by a few candles. The first I saw of the Queen was the reflection of her face, white in the glass of the window and floating like a haunted moon. 
The waves in the glass made her eyes look black and bottomless. She was sitting, staring out, and she was surrounded by silver and gold and things in bottles. Though they might have been cosmetics, they looked unearthly to me, like the concoctions of a witch. I fumbled my way to the fireplace and started to build up the fire, not liking to turn my back on her, but not having any other choice. She was behind me in a trice, and I swear to this day I never heard her move. Her skirt had made no sound, for there were thick rugs on the floor, and her stillness and poise stays with me now, because it was so unnatural. I was used to people with constantly busy hands, fidgeting, working, scratching themselves. The queen was like a statue over a tomb. I'm not ashamed to say that I dropped one of the logs loudly on the hearth. I know what they're saying about me, she said. Her voice was low with a slight French accent, but it's all nonsense, you know. There's no need to be afraid. I thought that there was every need to be afraid, what with a demonic hound giving people toothache and the invisible people walking about the castle and the dreams of clanking bones. If I could raise spirits, the Queen continued, the only one I'd raise up would be my husband, for I miss him sorely and my heart yearns to see him again. Well, I finished making up the fire and I got out of there swiftly, but I thought about what she'd said and I started to feel a bit sorry for her after that. I certainly wasn't so quick to listen when the others prattled about the black dog having given them a pimple or a swollen stomach. In fact, I started thinking that the Queen was probably alright, and I never minded going in to serve her after that until one night. I was bringing her a jug of Rhenish wine, which was her favourite. As I approached her chamber door, I could hear voices within, and as I got closer, I could especially hear her voice but the door was so thick that I couldn't actually make out what she was saying. Now, the door didn't fit very well in its frame, and there was a gap underneath it, and I was as little able to control my curiosity back then as I am now. So I bent down and had a look under the door. I couldn't see much, only that there were two shadows on the floor. That was a bit disappointing, so I straightened up and squinted through the keyhole instead. I could see the Queen, and by the heavy curtain, there was the very dark, shadowy shape of a tall, gaunt man with strange, old-fashioned hair. Then I heard a scratching and a skittering, like a dog's claws, but no dog did I see, only a dark, massy shape near the man's feet. Well, she never got her wine that night. I had it myself, sitting on the stairs to calm my shaking hands and shattered nerves. Eventually... The king pardoned her and released her from Leeds Castle, and things went back to normal. I wasn't at the castle much longer myself, and one of Queen Joan's 19 grooms certainly didn't follow her to her next residence, for he's even now sitting by the fire with his feet up snoring. But my niece, who works at the castle now, says they still hear the dog around sometimes, so that must have lingered. The years have passed, and Queen Joan's spirit lies quiet now. They built her a fine tomb in Canterbury Cathedral. I had a shock when I went to see it, for there lying next to her was the late King Henry. King Henry IV, that was. But it was the man from her chamber that night, with the funny hair and everything. And there at their feet, sleeping with them, was a dog. I felt a bit dizzy, so I stepped away for a moment. But when I looked back, 
there was an expression on the face of the effigy of Queen Joan which I was sure hadn't been there before. She was smiling. which were said about Queen Joan of Navarre or do you think it was a convenient political manoeuvre to get her out of the way? Well, you know me, I'm always happy to try and go for the most supernatural conclusion that there possibly is. So you think she was a necromancer? Yeah, absolutely. I think that the reported (laughs) sightings of the ghost of Joan Navarre and her dog at Leeds Castle are all absolutely true and that she could raise the dead. (laughs) (laughs) It's worth saying that I do not believe a single word of it. (laughs) But I do think it's interesting to see how these fears which pop up in folk tales can be manipulated. Yeah. People were scared of dark magic and the devil and, let's face it, scared of women. Now, when you're talking about the king that jailed her, is that Henry V? It is Henry V. Okay. And I must say, I had no idea that he had this vindictive streak. Yeah, quite. He's such a hero for us in England. He's, he's almost a folk hero. Yeah, he's he a is. real figure yeah, and yeah. really hard to untangle from his Shakespearean depiction. Yes, yes well... God uh, for Harry England and St George. In, indeed. But we've also got to remember that when Shakespeare was writing those plays, he was doing it in part as a propagandist, right? He was trying to build up England and the monarchy and to get himself patronage. Yes. And to all reports, uh, Joan of Navarre was actually a a nice stepmother to him. She was um, Henry IV's second wife. And and he was her second husband, actually. They'd both been married before. And um, she was apparently a great stepmom to all of his (laughs) previous kids. And um, (laughs) so Henry V (laughs) sort of turned against her. That's interesting, though, isn't it? It's like, hey, stepmom, I'd like some extra pocket money well you can't have it which you're a witch lock her up mm. uh, yes and it does seem to be a bit like that because i mean if if he'd really thought she was plotting against his life with magic yeah there probably would have been a trial <laughs> but there wasn't there was just oh house arrest in this very cushy situation in leeds castle so the details i included about all of her luxuries are from her account books which really? she kept in that time so oh. we know that she had her her page and many pairs of shoes. (laughs) I loved going to see her statue in Canterbury Cathedral or, you know, her tomb, I guess, in Canterbury Cathedral. It's very beautiful. She's tiny. She is. Very small little lady. Although I like the fact that we've done a good witchy story either side of Valpurgisnacht. So this is good. Yes, that's right. We have actually. Not not planned, just uh, no. I guess that the, the witch energy spoke to us. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a bit of a run, isn't there, of women in positions of power being accused of these things? Because, of course, witchcraft is much harder to prove than an actual crime, which would require evidence, <laughs> etc. Well, yes. I mean, speaking as a representative of all men, you ladies, you are a little bit spooky, aren't you? <laughs> well, almost anything can be a sign of witchcraft, can't it? Being too old, being too young, having no children. Having too many children, having lots of moles, having no moles, <laughs> laughing too much or not at all. You name it, it can probably be twisted to suggest witchcraft. <laughs> and, and, you know, of course, I feel like everybody knows some of those ways of testing that you're a witch or not. You know, things like the ducking stool, yes. um, you know, cover a woman in chains and throw her in the lake. And, and, if, she, and if she floats, she's a witch. And if she sinks, she's not one, but, but. she's dead anyway. 
Yeah. Well, in Joanna of Navarre's case, there were these some very convenient things against her. Yeah. Um, the legacy of Charles the Bad, the yeah. monstrous father. I mean, we see we see the monstrous father trope in fairy tales all the time, especially those featuring ogres. And it's a natural assumption. The father was bad, so the child must be tarred with the same brush. But that whole thing about him being sewn into the alcohol-soaked shroud, that's true, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's true. That really happened. That is how Charles the Bad died. I blame the devil more. Um, yeah. I think it was just a genuine sewing accident. Still, to go up like a Christmas pudding, <laughs> it's unfortunate. Yes, I mean, I suppose at least he was completely drunk on the fumes from the brandy, so probably <laughs> didn't feel too much pain. <laughs> and then, of course, there's the xenophobic superstitions. Mm. It would have been very easy for Henry V to play on. Because yeah. it's always so much easier to believe that somebody other, mm. so from another country, in this case France, is capable of more evil deeds because they're from over there. Yes, I mean, there is something about the human mind that is always looking to try and peel off groups and mm. go, they are unacceptable. Because they, they are not part of our group. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, there's a long history of that happening. Yeah, I mean, the English and the French, it's as old as time, isn't yep, it? <laughs> it is. But also, if you travel the world, which I've had the very good fortune to do, you'll find out in every single country there's versions of that. I, I don't think you can escape it as a person. I think all we can do as individuals is try and guard against it in our own mind and try and go, mm. no, we, we are all just creatures. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Same sun and all that. Yep. <laughs> but of course, there's also the power of imagination yeah. when you're spreading these rumours. Uh, why do we find ghost stories so scary? Well, I mean, that's a big question, but I think one of the real deep answers to it is this anxiety about what happens to us after death. Yes. Um, we all want to know if there's an afterlife. And of course, some people believe there is, mm. some people believe there isn't. But if ghosts exist, that would suggest there is some kind of existence after you've perished. Yeah. So whether you are Christian or from another religion, or if you're an atheist or an agnostic, ghost stories kind of appeal to everyone because we're all interested in this idea of, well, if there's ghosts after death, perhaps there's something for me after, after death. death. Yes, and because nine times out of ten we don't see ghosts, yeah, we hear much more about ghosts than we ever see one. Yeah. It's it becomes the worst thing we can imagine, doesn't mm, it? It does, Because yeah. my idea of a ghost might be rather different to your idea of the ghost. Oh, so sure, yeah. we imagine something that scares us personally. Yeah. And then you, you sort of ramp it up in your own imagination and every creak of the stair or sound of subsidence becomes this haunting threat. Oh, yeah. The uh, shadow in the corner of a room is the one that gets me. So we know when yes. I wake up in the middle of the night and I look over and I see something. Oh, my God, is that a person? And then <laughs> go, OK, no, no. It's the curtain. Chill out and go for your wee. Everything's fine. Or in our house, it's normally the shadow of a dress form. Yeah, because you're always making costumes. Yeah, I walk past it. There's usually a a ghostly headless figure in the doorway. (laughs) (laughs) So I actually, I conflated my Joan of Navarre story with the strikingly similar situation of Eleanor of Gloucester, Uh who just a few years later was also accused of necromancy and imprisoned in Leeds Castle. (laughs) And she was actually the one with whom the black dog sightings were associated. Oh, so that wasn't Joan of Navarre. No, so Eleanor of Gloucester supposedly had the dog. But I mean, it's it's a really similar political situation sure. where she was sort of tactically divorced because she was getting gaining too 
much power. But I find it interesting yeah. that the legacy of both of these women have kind of been conflated into the Leeds Castle spectre, as mm. it is, with this dog. And it's almost like ghostly powerful woman scary back then still scary now continues to haunt the kind of mind and psychology of the people of kent yes add a dog and it's even worse <laughs> yeah quite right <laughs> so where will we be wandering to next week and what can we look forward to next week we are headed to oxfordshire and i will be talking about lord lovell's bride oh i am looking forward to that sounds lovely a nice wedding story uh, kind of <laughs> <laughs> well if you just can't wait till next week and you'd like bonus content including exclusive episodes stories and our monthly three ravens newsletter which is packed with all sorts of interesting things and of course our archive of past episodes completely ad free then please consider joining our patreon for just three dollars a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash three ravens podcast as ever our website at three ravens podcast.com has all our episodes uh, the blogs for each week with expanded information and photographs and videos and all sorts of lovely things and our shop so do fly over and visit if you have your own folk tale you'd like us to feature on the podcast then do write it up and email it to us at three ravens podcast at gmail.com and we'd love to feature it in one of our upcoming listener episodes and please keep that wonderful artwork coming until next time then while our story's gone that way we'll go this way and remember don't whistle until you're out of the woods. Thanks and credit go to Martin Latham's Kent's Strangest Tales, the Visit Kent website, the Canterbury Cathedral website, and Tony Cooper's superbook Kent Folk Tales. Our theme song is the traditional folk ballad Three Ravens, performed by Ben Harbour and Eleanor Conlon, and our logo was designed by Ollie James Dare. The Three Ravens podcast is a Rust and Stardust production, produced by me, Martin Vaux. Thanks for listening. God sent every gentleman, such hounds, such hawks, and such lean man, with a down, dairy, 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 down, down. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.